Oh, it's, it's very exciting. I came from working in the ag retail industry, and nothing against that industry at all, but it, it got to become so monotonous of you're doing the same thing year over year, day after day, mm -hmm. and everybody's kind of farming the same way. This is a challenge, without a doubt, and, and kind of the way I look at it, soil health is we have to merge soil health with the agronomy and with the economics all as one, right? Mm -hmm. So it all has to be uh, all-encompassing. I, I didn't go to college to understand about soil microbiology or anything like that. I, I just... I found it so fascinating. I started to educate myself uh, just by reading. It sounds nerdy, but just reading <laughs> soil textbooks yeah. and books about biology that I never would have picked up in college. But I, I'm fascinated with it and how it all ties in with agronomy and everything. Welcome to the 316th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, community food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. There's nothing like extreme weather to shake farmers' confidence in the way they're managing their operation. For example, as I record this podcast, much of the Midwest is coming off an extremely hot, dry growing season. And as fall advances, little relief is in sight. In fact, as of this recording, 94% of Minnesota is considered in a formal drought situation, with more than a quarter in what weather experts consider extreme or exceptional drought. In many areas of the Midwest, this is at least the second straight year of abnormally dry weather. According to the USDA, topsoil moisture is short to very short across 79% of Iowa, 75% of Minnesota, 68% of Illinois, and 64% of Wisconsin. No wonder bone-dry fields and wilting crops were on farmers' minds during a recent Soil Health Field Day at the Tom Cotter Farm near Austin in southern Minnesota, an area that, by the way, was considered at the epicenter of extreme drought conditions in 2023. The event was sponsored by LSP, the Minnesota Soil Health Coalition, Superior Cannabis, the Maurer County SWCD, the Natural Resources Conservation Service, and soil regen. Cotter, who raises a variety of conventional and organic crops, along with beef cattle, utilizes numerous soil building techniques, including no-till, cover cropping, diverse rotations, and rotational grazing. He started the event off by conceding that the dry weather has made for a tough year on his farm. But, he told the crowd, when things get hard is when you learn the most. One thing farmers are learning is that one must be flexible and keep available as many tools as possible when the climate throws them a curveball. For example, many farmers at the field day shared concerns that a mainstay of building soil health, cover cropping, had actually been a detriment this year by stealing moisture from cash crops like corn and soybeans. On the other hand, cover cropping, when done over a period of several seasons, can build the kind of soil biology and aggregate structure that can help row crop fields better utilize any moisture that's available. One of the main presenters, David Kleinschmidt, made it clear that years like this are proof that it doesn't pay to be a soil health purist. Flexibility and adjusting on the fly is important these days. For example, one may need to terminate cover crops early to save moisture. Perhaps even utilize tillage and chemicals to deal with problems the weather and pest cycles can bring to the scene, says David, who, as the owner of the Illinois-based Progressive Agronomy Consulting Company, works with farmers to help them build healthy soil profitably. 
The key is to stay focused on the overall goal of building soil health over the long haul, even if it requires making some compromises in any given year. For example, Tom Cotter led field day participants to a parcel of land he had been forced to plow up when it was planted to alfalfa. However, he had made up for what he considered a soil health failure by immediately planting a cover crop before it was put into corn. The corn itself was doing well, despite the drought. As David argues, if we are to respond nimbly to the needs of the soil, we need a way of monitoring it that goes beyond just determining how much N, P, and K fertilizer to apply. In fact, during the field day, the agronomist demonstrated a carbon dioxide tester, which helps measure microbial activity. The results on a couple of Tom's fields were a bit surprising and also offered hope about the resiliency of sun-baked soil. David Kleinschmidt later talked to me about the danger of being a rigid purist when it comes to building soil health and the importance of keeping as many tools as possible at one's disposal. He also discussed how a key tool for managing weather disasters, crop insurance, can, in its current form, actually be a deterrent to building long-term soil health resilience. So, David, we're uh, here at the Tom Cotter farm. We just had a really good morning tour of some of his fields, looking at some of the stuff he's been doing. It's been a tough year, but as Tom said, you learn your best lessons sometimes in tough years. One of the things you had talked about was, and, and I think this tough year and kind of extreme weather situations that we have get into in other years proves this true, but I think it's a really good lesson to be reminded of is we can't be a purist when it comes to soil health. We have to be able to adjust on the go, and this is a good example. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why that is a really important lesson and kind of what are some examples of not being a purist and kind of adjusting a little bit how you're doing things. Yeah, so like this year, when I look at the, the weather pattern that we started with that started last fall and looking at how much rain we had last fall when we seeded that cover crop, how much rain did we have throughout the winter time and then coming into the springtime uh, when we we're getting, thinking about planting that cash crop, in a lot of cases we had to terminate that cover crop a lot earlier so we weren't taking up that moisture from that soil profile because the whole thing is we can have all the soil health in the world but if we don't raise a crop and produce a crop you know what's the value of that you know we, we can't really sell the soil health thing where we got to have some bushels through the grain so trying to conserve moisture you know on dry years we might need to terminate early and on wetter years we might be able to let it grow and and terminate much later those cover crop's going to help soak up a lot of that excess moisture out of the profile. You know, this year in my area, I can roll or crimp standing cereal rye with soybeans growing in it and, and roll them at the V2 stage on, on soybeans. But like this year, it got so dry 10 days before we hit, we were going to be at that V2 stage that the beans were turning white. They were rolling their leaves over and the rye was just taking up so much uh, moisture we went in and sprayed the rye just to kill it and then came back and roller cramped it uh, to still get that benefit of having that cereal rye on that soil but we still had to have that goal of raising a cash crop mm -hmm. yeah it, it's really people get really stuck into i'm never going to till again or i'm never going to maybe even spray again, that kind of thing. But you said don't take any of the tools out of the toolbox. Yeah, absolutely. Leave as many of the tools, leave all the tools in your toolbox, you know. Uh, you never know when 
you know, you're going to have a wet fall or something, you might have to work in some ruts, you know, or something like that. I do a, recommend to a lot of guys to run an inline subsoil ripper uh, where they load trucks in the fall, you know, and break up that compaction. It, it's a little bit of a disturbance there, but there's, there's so many guys that think we have to eliminate fertilizers and eliminate pesticides and eliminate everything. Well, if we eliminated the, the fertilizer completely and we reduced our yields, how, more, how profitable can that be, you know? If we allow weed infestations to completely take over our crops, how profitable is that going to be, you know? So sometimes just spend a little bit of money for preventative things can, can make up dividends on the back, too. We had a really good example here where Tom, so Tom has it, and I've seen him talk about this before. He has a plus, a kind of a, a positive and a negative chart that he, he throws up when he gives presentations where he's like, you give and take. Sometimes you do have to do some things that really aren't great for soil health. But if you can follow up with a positive, in this in this case, we were there in a, in his cornfield, and he had had alfalfa in that. And you asked him how he terminated it, and he had to <laughs> admit to his great chagrin that he had to till it. But then he said, "I followed up with a positive by putting in a cover crop." I mean, is, that sounds like that's a pretty good strategy of not being stuck in that kind of purist system, but just realizing, okay, there's some things I can do to make up for maybe some damage I've done to the soil health. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he had to, he had to plow that, that alfalfa in to, to terminate it. Otherwise, it was going to be really tough to control in his corn, and, and his corn looks absolutely phenomenal out mm-hmm. there. But he followed it up with another cover crop to try to keep things cycling, uh, to repair those aggregates that he was destroying, and to keep going. So he's done a fantastic fantastic job of weighing out those pros and cons and and trying to stack more pros for every con you know Mm -hmm. trying to get that two plus two to equal six instead of four type of mentality right right and you dug up a sample there i mean what did you see yeah so you could obviously tell where the plow pan was in that soil and the, there, because we haven't really had a lot of moisture here or anything, that soil is just really crumbly still just from uh, not being able to fall back together or anything like that. There's little aggregation there except for where we had foxtail and some other you know weeds that were growing in that corn. You compare that to the field that we went to next that was a, a pot or a sweet corn field that was no-till. It's not organic, but... There was a whole lot more aggregation in that soil profile, and even down into, you know, six, eight inches deep in that profile, there was still some moisture in that profile. And, and we even were using a tool called a, a ST-1 that's looking at measuring soil respiration in that soil profile, and where we did the tillage peaked out at a 1,500 parts per million CO2 respiration, but whereas uh, the no-till conventional mm-hmm. uh, farm, you know, that still has, you know, herbicide use, still has synthetic fertilizer, but has been using cover crops with grazing, it was over 5,000 parts per million. So there's more microbial activity in that soil than, than the tilled ground had. And that's what's, that's what that, you had that uh, test that you did on both fields. And that's what that CO2 test is showing us is microbial activity. That's why we should care what what, what that that what that monitoring is showing us yeah absolutely we're looking at with that how much aggregation we have in that soil profile basically uh, we're looking at the the more the microbes that we have the more respiration the higher the respiration rate the more nutrient cycling we're going to get out of that soil as well so we can we can take credit for more of those nutrients that the microbes and the plant roots and water make available 
Well, that just brings up, I think, a really good piece that dovetails into that is if you are going to adjust and not be a purist and kind of roll with the punches a little bit, that weather or markets or whatever throw at you, you have to be really good at monitoring what's going on out there. And kind of some of the old school ways that we use to monitor soil sounds like don't work out so well. It, it don't fit into this system so well when you're trying to do, take a systems approach and be and kind of be flexible. Yeah, and I love that whole systems approach. That's why I look at uh, all the time with guys and talking about, you know, how do we manage this cover crop for that cash crop? What do we need on our planter? What do we need to do uh, with the sprayer? You know, what things can we utilize there? And soil, I mean, there's some soil tests out here that have been around for better part of 40 years all the way to 80 years and the technology that was was around when those were developed were good for its times but you know even back in the the late 1800s the russians were trying to figure out uh, how to measure microbial respiration and how to use water as an extract and everything but back 80 years ago and 40 years ago we didn't have a sensitivity enough in those tools to actually measure what the microbes were doing and and we do now and we know a lot more about the soil system even though we only know probably about one percent of what actually goes on in that soil we still know more today than we did you know 40 and 80 and 100 plus years ago of what's going on and why so the the soil tests that i use today and and the way that i approach things might change something might replace it another 5 10 15 years something better we hope you know but we had to continuously adapt you look at the farmer's equipment that we use now we're still not chasing we're not chasing a mule's rear like we did back in the the you know 80 years ago uh or we're not running around in, on an old john deere b we've we've got precision technology in our tractors and on our planters and our strip till and fertilizer rigs and everything so let's take that same type of precision technology into soil testing beyond just grid and and zone but the actual extractants and everything that's used and understand how to use that as a credit system uh, instead of a maintenance build-up system to really drive this whole system forward yeah i think you were mentioning tests like the haney tests some of these tests really take a look at rather than looking at well how short am i in fertilizer it's looking at well how much fertility does it actually need you're kind of you're you're asking a different question in a way with those tests absolutely instead of looking at the likeliness of a a response to a fertilizer we're actually looking and saying if it rains this is how much microbial activity we'll have Mm -hmm. this is how much the root the the root exudates feeding the microbes can actually release those nutrients out of that profile so if it rains this is what we can take a credit on so we look at our yield goal and what it takes for crop removal to produce that bushel subtract that credit and then that's how much fertilizer we need to apply there so we can save a lot of money which is huge even when when we think about soil health the microbes with all the salt that we put out with a fertilizer that's detrimental to microbes so we have to start thinking about what are microbes like and what do we need to feed them to foster that good health it just really struck me when you you added what you had that um, monitor in there, the CO two monitor, and you added water, and it just I mean it's it's, it's that boy well, doesn't you don't get any better exam, hands on example of just if you can get some moisture in there, those microbes they, that soil's alive, something is activating there. It wasn't it's just not pouring it on dead dirt there. Absolutely, and and all soils have bacteria. They have they have these microorganisms in our soils. That's what's making all the nutrients available and everything. And 
when I poured that water, they haven't had rain here for quite a while. And when I poured a water bottle around like a 12 inch diameter of that three inch tube, we seen an immediate 1500 and on the, uh, all the way up to another 2000 parts per million spike in CO2 respiration. And that didn't even infiltrate any more than a quarter of an inch or less yeah. into that profile. So it's showing how resilient those microbes respond to just a little bit of moisture, even at the soil surface, when the the tubes at the or this tube has holes in the bottom, so it's six inches deep, and that's where the, the CO2 is being exchanged at. So from a quarter inches at the, the surface all the way down to that six inch, there was a, a response to respiration there. And if nothing else, it's kind of a morale booster because people are pretty, <laughs> all the farmers I'm talking to this year are pretty down about how dry things are, how things look really worn out, some cover, cover crop failures, that kind of thing. But to see, like you said, how resilient the soil can be when it's just given a little bit of a chance and maybe you've built that system up so that it, it can take advantage of, of any opportunities that come along moisture-wise, it's really kind of a morale booster. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of times we talk about all the, the, the great things about the cover crops, but we don't ever talk about the bad things that can be part of the cover crops. Management plays into that so critically, and that's why I talked about don't be a purist here too, right? And I've seen on social media so often this spring and, and summer of guys that were complaining about how their crop looked, that they planted into a cover crop, but they didn't terminate that cover crop when it was so dry. You got to think that cover crop is taking up moisture. It's taking up nutrients out of that soil profile. And if you don't have rain to recharge it, and we were behind moisture compared to a year ago for the same three, four, six month period mm -hmm. compared to that year prior, how much rain is it going to take to now recharge that whole system? And so, yes, the, the non-cover crop fields or the tilled fields looked absolutely outstanding early on. In my part of Illinois, the same thing happened until we started catching rain. Now the, the cover crop fields look outstanding. You know, they're holding on to their, 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 um, their color. Um, they look, the plants look so much healthier. But early on, I almost wrote them off through June. They looked horrible. It's a good, you made a good point that it's not about cover crops itself. It's how you're managing them. And we're part of this, we're still learning, I think, a little bit how to manage cover crops. We got through some, in this area anyway, through some wet years where we managed them in a different way than we're managing them now in dry years. Yeah, and when we talk about cover crops, that's one of the things I tell a lot of guys. Cover crops is just an overarching term that you have all of these species and subspecies underneath them. So we need to start identifying these species that complement our cash crop and, and not use these species that are going to inhibit our cash crop. Can I ask you a question that's a little bit off the wall, but you had brought it up, and it's a real point that uh, we're really concerned about. It's the impact of crop insurance on building soil health. I've heard a lot of other people make this point too, and and Tom, I've talked to Tom about this as well, that it can be really a, this is about innovation, and it can be really something that's kind of stymies innovation um, as far as just trying to try something different and also maybe you don't have it in your head that, okay, maybe I shouldn't be planting corn in this, uh, corn on corn in this field or whatever, you know, in, in and if you didn't have that uh, kind of have that support there. Not that we should, obviously this is a year that proves that we do need crop insurance for these really terrible failures, but it can be a real uh, a barrier to some innovation, can it? Well, 
I'm not saying that we need to take away and remove crop insurance at all, but we do kind of need to look at how it's used as a tool as well. Mm -hmm. You know, there's some good programs like in Illinois that pay farmers, you know, or give them a credit of $5 uh, an acre on their crop insurance, which is great. Uh, but there's also some barriers in terms of soil health when we start looking at, hey, we know that we can grow a, a soybean and, and rye together and crimp it later and, and not affect yield. But according to RMA policies, we need to have that terminated before emergence or within so many days of planting. So it kind of ties our hands there a little bit, and we have to kind of prove that practice to be allowed. Uh, but the big thing about, you know, especially with, with cover crops and no-till, is we probably don't need to be planting our cash crops, especially corn, as early as we do. Those soils are cool and wet. Um, yeah, the cover crop's drying it out a lot, but we need to wait until those soils warm up more. And the one thing I noticed a lot with when we've got crop insurance that is helping with the replant, we've got replant policies from seed companies and everything, is guys are going out and they're planting into colder and wetter conditions and maybe their corn doesn't germinate for three weeks so we immediately put that plant under stress which introduces more pathogens that is going to have an effect on it we maybe inhibit some of the the nutrient ability for it to cycle nutrients better uh, and take up nutrients but the biggest thing is hey, we sit there and we know that we might have to replant that. Well, if we were not being having that uh, incentive out there, we would probably make the agronomic decision to actually keep the planter in the shed and wait until that corn could come up right out of the ground in you know, three to five days, much quicker than two weeks or three weeks. Less stress on the plant. And, and hey, we, we've seen that corn and soybeans can yield a tremendous amount. Uh, the the fellow down in Georgia just yielded, what, 209 bushel soybeans, right? So if we can manage the stress on that, that's a big part of increasing those yields. Tom mentioned, well, part of my crop insurance is I have livestock because I can go in and graze something that maybe didn't quite yield away grain-wise or whatever. And integrating livestock is such an important part of building soil health. So it, it can maybe in an indirect way serve as a way to kind of bring livestock back into into these farming systems. Yeah, so in my part of, uh, well, in southern Illinois, they just announced, I believe it's a 1,400 head kill plant for beef, and that potentially could bring a lot of cattle back into to my part of the world. There's been 30 years of fences removed from our fields, and, and I get it that it's a struggle with, with cash rent and everything to put fences back up, but bringing livestock back to the operation could be a means to bring uh, the next generation back to the farm. Mm -hmm. And maybe, maybe we do need a hoop building or something to run some, some calves in. And when we can kick them out to graze on a cover crop, we do when we can, you know, type of thing. But we need to look at how much cash flow can we generate from that one acre and that return on investment. Like the how, how many times can we turn a profit in one year on that one acre mm -hmm. which is corn and beans we're only doing it once a year seeing you do the testing and kind of explaining some of the results i saw some some real light bulbs go off above people's heads and this is something i noticed a lot at field days and workshops is for a lot of farmers who've been doing it for a while this whole soil health thing is really exciting and fun for them i mean you work with a lot of farmers is that that's part of it. I mean, obviously, it's a way you've got to figure out a way to make this economically viable and, and all of that. And the economics and the agronomics are so key. But 
part of it is just giving you an excuse to get up every day. I mean, do you see that a little bit that it's just kind of, and I'm also seeing the science is starting to catch up with what some of the farmers know, like some of these new ways of doing soil uh, testing, the CO2 monitor that you showed. Those are kind of fitting into what maybe farmers had observed, but they weren't quite sure why they were observing that. So I think that's kind of exciting. Oh, it's, it's very exciting. I came from working in the ag retail industry, and nothing against that industry at all, but it, it got to become so monotonous of you're doing the same thing year over year, day after day, mm -hmm. and everybody's kind of farming the same way. This is a challenge, without a doubt, and, and kind of the way I look at it, soil health is we have to merge soil health with the agronomy and with the economics all as one, right? Mm -hmm. So it all has to be uh, all-encompassing. When I started studying, like, I, I didn't go to college to understand about soil microbiology or anything like that. I, I just... I found it so fascinating. I started to educate myself uh, just by reading. It sounds nerdy, but just reading <laughs> soil textbooks yeah. and books about biology that I never would have picked up in college. But I, I'm fascinated with it and how it all ties in with agronomy and everything. And there's there's a lot of big words in, in, in this whole soil health realm when you start talking about all these insect or the, the microbiome of that soil. And I found for farmers to understand this, we've got to break this down to a level that they can understand. Talk about things that they can visualize, you know. I talk about building your soil health is, is like building a fire. Or using how to manage carbon to nitrogen ratios is like building a fire, you know. And, and how we look at carbon to nitrogen ratios with the soil respiration. And, and visualizing things like babies versus football players, you know, and how much food they eat yeah. type of thing. And once once people start to, to visualize that and see that, then they start understanding it and getting it, Why then it's not such a daunting task of, of planting a cover crop. For more information on building soil health profitably, See the podcast page for Ear to the Ground episode 316 at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.